you know, another accolade for top, tops and trends, Jesse, is they actually one year won Inc. Uh, Inc. 500, one of the top businesses. Serious. That's a big deal. Yeah. So we were the 407th fastest growing company in the country. And it was like one of my, I, I'd been to see him a couple times, but now I got introduced to pro. So I came to the party and it was that year that you won. And I remember you going on stage and getting that award. And I said, man, one day, one day, I want to be that guy getting that award one day. And this is being really candid and really honest. Like, you know, we sat around and tried to educate dealers to where we could offer an opportunity for them to make profit. Welcome to the Ride and Style Podcast, your turbocharged pit stop for automotive restyling. Buckle up with Jesse and Josh. All right, welcome back to another episode of Ride and Style. We got a special guest today, Joey Johnston, Tops and Trends owner, three locations in North Carolina. Hi, Joey. How are you? Hey, how's it going, guys? And uh, Josh here, as usual, my my co-pilot. What's up, everybody? At the uh, Auto Editions, and isn't are you in? Uh, I think you're in. Is it Westerville, Ohio, or somewhere close to Columbus? Right. Yeah, it's basically Columbus. It's a suburb of Columbus, so. Buckeye State, Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, Ohio State Buckeyes. Yeah, hated by the world. Right. Yeah. And I'm uh, I'm calling out of uh, Seattle area. So been uh, been been here for a little while. We're actually I'm actually north of Seattle. Just for the record, I don't want to live in Seattle. Nobody does anymore. I'm I'm halfway to Canada. Oh. So we we actually go to Vancouver, British Columbia for fun instead of Seattle. Okay. Hey, how about we do this, um, Joey? If you could describe your background. Uh, a little intro for yourself and, and kind of your journey into the auto restyling industry. That I think that'd be a great place to start if that's okay with you. Okay, sure. Well, um, you know, it's a family business and one that uh, for those that have ever worked in a family business probably can attest to that um, after you've done it for a while as a kid, you, you learn early on that you want to do anything but work in a family business when you get older. <laughs> and so... Uh, you know, after growing up, you know, from probably the ages of nine or 10, watching my dad work on cars uh, through high school uh, and working on projects, uh, I enjoyed working with my father. He's a really talented man, uh, mechanical engineer. So he had, he had a, a really good understanding of, of how things went together uh, and things of that nature. But so, you know, my background was just, you know, I grew up always, you know, that generation where, you know, you delivered papers, mowed yards, and then, you know, work with my parents. And so, um, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a lot of fun, but I knew that, you know, when I got older, I was like, you know, I'm not sure this is where I want to be. Um, and so I went to school and, you know, ultimately, uh, uh, became a, a finance major and stockbroker. And after a couple of years, I figured out that, you know, maybe working for the family business wouldn't be a bad idea after all. So that's kind of how I got back into it. And that was in 1994, five and been doing it ever since. Mm. You know, you know, it's uh, so speaking of your dad, Mr. Joe Johnston, senior, uh, Jesse, he won a SEMA pro lifetime achievement award. Uh, like, uh, what was it? Two years ago, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think a couple and of years we, ago. Yeah. We lost, we lost him two years ago as well. So, uh, sorry to hear that. Very, uh, one of the Titans of our industry for sure. Cause it, what year did he start the business, Joey? Roughly 19, 1977. 1970. And I told you, Jesse, the bit, the industry really took off in the 80s and 90s. So he was there at the very forefront, very forefront. Yeah, he 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 was there with the with the guys, you know, like the Jerry Rollmans, um, yeah. 
and, and some of those guys that, uh, you know, it's two of the original uh, 20 group members and some of those folks. Um, you know, one of our friendly competitors down in Fayetteville is a company called CC Top Shops. And uh, Charlie Crumpler Sr., he started his business recovering Cadillacs and Lincolns, vinyl types, in a horse barn. So, you know, that again, back to the, you know, the generational thing, those people did a lot with, you know, they did a lot with a little. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't have all just quick internet with all the products we have now and a SEMA show to go find whatever they need to do. And maybe you could tell the, tell the folks how your dad kind of got into the sunroof business. I love this story. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of interesting. I mean, uh, my dad was always, um, you know, a, a mechanic, a wheeler dealer from the sense that he liked to buy cars, uh, kind of especially, I think, it, you know, for a while was it Volkswagens, whether it be Beatles or, you know, micro buses and would fix them up. They were pretty easy to work on and sell them for a profit. Uh, my grandfather was a mechanic, uh, worked for the army uh, at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where they developed uh, the nuclear bomb, actually. And so, you know, we just kind of had a history of, of being able to work on things. My dad was, a, you know, growing up as a kid, he was a boat mechanic. Uh, working on outboard engines. So uh, he uh, enlisted in the Navy, uh, served uh, his time there, and then came out. And my dad has always says one of the best things that ever happened to him was the GI Bill. You know, the GI Bill allowed him to go to college. Um, and, you know, he went to school, got his degree, uh, worked for a railroad for a, a brief period of time in uh, Atlanta, uh, and then came to North Carolina, which is where we're from originally. And began uh, working for a couple of textile companies and my dad bought a 1976 Pontiac Grand Prix and he wanted a sunroof that he had seen when he was traveling on the west coast because in his work with textiles and uh, logistics he had to go to the west coast a lot and he noticed that a lot of the the new trends if you would were on the west coast so things that were happening out there in California we hadn't even seen here on the East coast. And again, like Josh mentioned, that's back before the internet, right? So, you know, there's no, you know, just jump on a computer and, and look to see what's happening. I mean, you saw it either on TV or magazines. And so he bought this Grand Prix and he said, man, I've seen these sunroofs and I really would like to have one, but nobody around here did it. You know, he called, he went to dealerships, he asked and nobody did it. And dad said, I think I can put one of those in. And so he, uh, he went to, uh, he went to the library and back then you, you had business directories, uh, I think the wards directory and some of those others. And he basically researched who made sunroofs and then got on the phone and called around and found that the closest distributor was in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, gentleman by the name of Bob Jernigan, who a lot of us that have been in the business for a while know Bob. He had a company called Atlanta Auto Accessories and Bob's retired now, but, uh, my dad called down there and said, Hey, listen, guys, I'm interested in a pop-up sunroof. I'd like to buy one. And uh, Bob said, well, you know, we don't sell retail. I um, mean, you can't buy one. You got to buy 12. My dad said, but I only need one. I don't need 12. <laughs> Bob said, well, that's just kind of the way it works. And so my dad, I guess, hung up from that call and started thinking. And so he said that went a couple of weeks. And he said, man, I really want that sunroof. And so he went and called on a number of the dealers in the Greensboro market and said, hey, guys, um, you know, here's some information on, on pop-up centers. Do you like this? And would you, would you ever put those in if somebody could do it local? And they're like, yeah, we kind of like that. And so the Pontiac dealership said, we'll take one or two. The Honda store said they'd take a couple and, you know, so forth and so on. I think a Ford dealership took one. And so my dad had about half of the 12 that he was going to have to buy sold 
during that weekend of going out and talking to people. And so, you know, a couple of days go by and he calls back to, you know, Bob Jernigan and says, okay, I'd like to, to put 12, you know, on order, but here's the deal. Uh, I'm going to come down there and uh, I'm going to want to watch you put one in. And then I want to put one in a car that I'm driving down there and then I'll drive back with the other 11. And so my dad had a, uh, I think it was a 72, 73 Honda Civic, took the passenger seat out of the Honda Civic, drove to Atlanta, uh, watched their installer put one in, uh, then put one in the Honda Civic and drove back with the other 11. And that's how we got in business. So literally I can just picture him driving back on the freeway, looking over if there was a freeway. And there's a pile, there's 11 pop-up centers sitting at where the passenger would be. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you got to remember that little Civic was super small, you yeah. know, so he had, a, they, they were stacked, you know, from basically floor to ceiling uh, and then behind him as well. So um, pretty, uh, pretty comical sight, I'm sure. I, I wish we had a picture to look back on because that would have been That's fun. great. Joy, I have a question. You mentioned that uh, at first when you were younger, you were thinking, I don't want to be in the family business. Then you went out and had the journey into finance, and then you decided to come back. It wouldn't be so bad. Why did you decide that, and like, how'd you overcome that? What was the transition like to start working for your dad? And you know, like, I'm curious what that relationship was like. Was it easy? Was it tough? Was it challenging? What happened there? Uh, yeah, probably all all the above. I mean, you know, so growing up, you know, as kids. Um, anybody that tells you otherwise is just lying, in my opinion, because you know what, if you, if you've got good parents and I, and I did, and I do, um, they're tough on you, right? They want you to, they want you to be, uh, have it better than they did. Um, but my family was one that they wanted you to earn it. And my dad was really demanding. Um, and again, he was highly intelligent, you know, far smarter than me. And when we would work together, the interesting thing about it would be, he was almost like a doctor in the sense that when we would work on cars, I would go out on the weekends and we'd put pop-up centers in together. And after the first weekend, the second weekend, I remember, you know, my dad, we would be there working and he, um, he had gotten into a routine. Again, as an engineer, his job was actually to set up production floors uh, so that the, the equipment was in the right place so that the machinery could operate as efficiently as possible. So he was a very much assembly line mentality. And even though he was a one-person, you know, one-man band, he had it figured out. And, you know, back in the early days, he was part-time. He kept a full-time job to do the work he did. And so he would go to work in Winston-Salem. And then when he would get off work, he literally would have a pair of coveralls in his car. And he would literally still be in dress clothes, penny loafers on, in coveralls, going into dealerships to get the keys for a car that he'd be working on from, you know, 530, 6 o'clock until, you know, 8 or 9 o'clock that evening when he got done. And then he would come home for dinner. So, you know, that tells you a little bit about kind of the work ethic he had. You know, he worked Saturdays, Sundays. He was, a, he loved NASCAR. So he'd, he'd, he'd watch a race, but he, you know, it wasn't, you know, beyond him to work six or seven days a week. And, you know, in the later years, um, his office had a couch in it and there's many nights he slept on the couch so he could be, you know, finish a car that was due out and be at the office the next morning. So, but, you know, so I think that helps you understand kind of where, you know, I came from. My dad was demanding. And when we would work on cars, he would expect me to almost, you know, I used to, as a kid, read my mind. Like when he cut the hole, he was expecting me to have, you know, a, a set of, of 10 snips in, in my hand, weigh the hand to him. And then when the hole was cut, if we were going to prom the, you know, prom the edge or butyl next, whatever it was, I was supposed to basically be his assistant. 
And as a kid, as a teenager, I mean, we, you know, I've been fortunate to have some great kids, but you know, they don't get that. Right. And I didn't get it either. And so, you know, I'm sitting here going, dad, you want me to read your mind? And he's like, yeah, I want you to know that we've done this job several times and you should know what's next. Mm. And that was tough. And, you know, he approached everything that way and he was teaching me. I just didn't know he was teaching me. Yeah. And so you ask, you know, the question, how, how do you, you know, I get to where I'm at now. Well, when you're a kid growing up and you've got that kind of expectation, you know, you're like, man, maybe I'd like to do something a little bit differently with less expectation. Um, and How so many times did you uh, get fired? Oh yeah. You, yeah. You remember that story too. So I remember one summer I fired three <laughs> times and, uh, and, uh, the first one was, was talking back to the shop foreman mm. that got me fired. And then I talked my way back into the job about a week later, a week and a half later. And then I was mowing the grass and, you know, my, my dumb self had the, 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 the exit chute pointed towards the cars in the parking lot. Oh. And so I'm blowing grass on the cars and no you know, not thinking about, yeah, no rock. And, and my dad walks out and goes, Hey, what are you doing? I said, I'm mowing the grass. You know, basically, Hey, you don't do that. And I'm like, it's just grass. And he said, but it could be something else. And we had a discussion. Then I got fired. <laughs> and, so, and then I think I, I think I, I think he kept me out of work for like three weeks, you know, before, but you know, back then again, you know, I, I, I hate to keep referencing it, but you know, I had to make my own spending money. So, you know, I wanted to have spending money. So I was like, you know, and I only could mow two or three yards back home, you know, when I, so I, again, I wanted to be working and, uh, you know, as, as I, understood it it got better and i remember in high school we did a uh, a zone package with oldsmobile we'd been really fortunate that uh you know once we went into this thing full time uh we nailed down a zone package and we did three or four of these and we're talking three four hundred cars you know these cars would go to the charlotte race and be part of the uh the kickoff and i remember that my dad needed to get a lot of cars done and I had learned a fair amount and we were doing ground effects and hood scoops and things like these on cutlasses. And so I got a couple of my buddies from high school together. My dad said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pay you per unit, not per hour. Hmm. And I remember that, uh, me and, uh, one of my friends, David Adams and, uh, another guy, we went over there in one weekend and this is back in, we're talking 1983, 84. We all made over $500 in one weekend. Installing Ooh. ground effects and things like that. So, you were rich. You know, put that into, oh yeah. Yeah. Put that in today's dollars. Right. But you know, oh. we did the work, we came up with a system and, uh, and it, you know, it paid off for us. So, um, so that's, I guess who made, you know, my dad and mom, you know, really taught me a lot of great lifelong skills, um, that, you know, I'll never forget. And hopefully, you know, I've done a decent job of passing some of that knowledge down to my It's kids. almost like an apprenticeship program, like a very old fashioned without, without you even maybe realizing you were in one. <laughs> oh, oh yeah no yeah you have to absolutely yeah donald trump and, and uh and the apprentice gang got nothing on me so <laughs> you're fired <laughs> yeah oh yeah yeah i heard that a lot so what so tell tell everybody the products you were doing back then in the 70 late 70s 80s what were the what were the big products that you you mentioned a few of them but your dad was installing yeah. So, you know, back then it was pop-up centers was key, right? You know, that's what we kind of started on. And, and, you know, we ran our business part-time with pop-up centers. Yeah. You know, again, pop would put a couple in, you know, in the evenings, uh, four or five on the weekends. And, and then we bought enough pop-up centers that we actually became a distributor. 
So we actually started then distributing pop-up sunroofs to other folks. Um, we did vinyl top simulated convertibles, you know, became big back then. Ground effects were a thing, real red X spoilers. Uh, and, you know, and then we also did, you know, early days, we did target conversions. So we were converting RX-7s, uh, putting targets in those, Toyota Celicas. We were doing some of those. Uh, we did turbocharging back in the day. Again, turbocharging. Yeah. So we had an RX-7 indigo blue with a target top and a turbo putting out about 12 pounds of boost in a rotary engine. And my dad loved nothing more than when he went to Myrtle Beach, he would just absolutely eat people's lunch up in that sleeper vehicle. <laughs> So how many of those products that you did back then are you still doing today? Uh, it's funny. Yeah. We just talked about that. You know, my mom and I were talking, you know, how much things change, you know, you know, until just recently, you couldn't even buy a pop-up sunroof in North America. Um, That's true. And, you know, simulate convertible types. I was talking to, uh, you know, a friend of ours, you know, Josh, Ralph George, and I said, you still doing any of those? Because he's in that kind of, you know, land of retirement down there in South Florida. And he's like, nope. And, oh, wow. you know, we just, you know, we do a recover every once in a while. So, you know, again, pop-ups gone, simulated convertibles for the most part gone, uh, ground effects for the most part gone, uh, you know, replaced with power sunders, uh, back in those days, uh, leather interiors and things like that. But, you know, the business is always changing, but yet, you know, a lot of us that go to SEMA year in and year out say it, it changes, but it still kind of stays the same. Right. Yeah. Um, over the years since, I mean, there's a lot of history here, not just with your dad, but you know, you've had a lot of history in this too. What are some of the biggest challenges you've faced in the industry and how'd you overcome them? You know, I think things for us, you know, might've been a little bit, you know, different because I, I think we worried about things that other people didn't worry about. Um, you know, my dad was good at sales. He was good at negotiations. My mom was good at sales. And even though she was a nurse, when she came into the business full time to actually start selling, she was good at it. She was a natural. Um, we didn't worry about selling product and installing product because my dad was so talented. Um, we worried more about the, the long run, like for example, liability, you know, when we're doing a target top, you know, and you're cutting the A and B pillars in a vehicle what's the chance that that customer may have an incident where they're in an accident? Uh, and I don't think a lot of people thought that way back then. Uh, you know, we sat on the sidelines, uh, for probably three or four years when leather interior first came out, um, when airbags became an issue because we were like, you know what, I'm not sure that we're really comfortable with the aftermarket's approach on how they're doing airbags and things of that nature. Um, power sunroof is very similar. I mean, you know, again, um, there's been multiple companies in the power center business over the years, you know, uh, ASC is who we started with. And then you had Hollandia Wabasto, uh, you've had Ison, you know, uh, you know uh, Skytop, you have a number of guys that have been in it, but, you know, we really only felt like one company really actually had the wherewithal and the, the, the asset base and the testing base to, to, to put in a product that was good. And that was Wabasto and, you know, their OE contracts kind of spoke for that. So, you know. We look at a lot of that, you know, when we're, when we're doing installations, we want to think about what's the, the long-term ramifications of what we're doing. You know, we had a customer call us just yesterday and said, Hey, will you put in this adaptive cruise? And we're like, and he's like, it's a Ford aftermarket part. And we're like, well, you said Ford aftermarket. So I, I listened for about 30 seconds and said, no, <laughs> you know, the, the, you know, the fact of the matter is I just think that, you know, all of us, if we want to have a long-term business, we live in a litigious society. And 
you have to think, um, you know, is it something, A, I'd want to put my family in? Would, would I want to put my son or daughter in that vehicle after I work on it? And, and two, you know, if you're looking out for the customer, the business is always going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Good philosophy. Did you guys have any significant failures over the years that you had to bounce back from and maybe learn from? Anything that you could address there? Learning lessons, you know, I, I guess. I, I, learning lessons, failures. Oh, I mean, I think we're you know we're always learning. You know, at, at the end of the day, you know, when when you come in, uh, and you think you know, anytime you think you've got it all figured out, is about the time you're ready to really screw something up. Um, so, you know. I, and I think we're all guilty of that. But, you know, I think for the most part, we were pretty methodical about things. Um, you know, uh, you know, we all get caught kind of off guard, whether, you know, it's something as simple as, you know, you open up an email and next thing you know, you've got a virus worm in its way through your database. And all of a sudden you can't produce invoices and you don't know what three months worth of history of, uh, of accounts receivable is. I mean, you know, we, we had a small issue with something like that one time and you just learn from it. Right. Um, yeah, you know, we've made bad hiring decisions, but anybody that's a business, you know, owner and employs people's made bad hiring decisions. Um, so, you know, I, I'd like to say, if you know, if I could think about any one huge mistake I've made, you know, um, you know, I, I've had lots of, you know, anecdotal stories. You know, I, I remember that when we bought a, a, a classic soft trim branch in Raleigh, uh, we had a week, uh, basically, uh, typatory period when we went in and we worked with their current staff and, they were going to close the branch down and the staff didn't know that, but we knew that going in. And so we went in and, you know, we basically watched the operation trying to get a feel for the people. Uh, and they had some good, uh, some good folks and some folks that, you know, probably wouldn't have wanted to keep on. And so at the Friday, we made an offer on the business. We, we agreed on the price. We bought the business and we agreed on two of the five employees coming to work for us. Between Friday and Monday, those two employees decided they were going to go work somewhere else. So I laughed at the fact that we bought a business committed to a lease and had no employees working for us when we started on Monday. <laughs> yeah. That's a problem. Yeah. Wow. So, but you know, we've been there, been there, done that. I mean, we've had operations before where, um, you know, where we've been in that situation, you know, um, when we, we bought a, a gentleman out that came to work for us in Asheville and it was a small store and, uh, his son was one of the primary workers. And when his son went off, we didn't have a, you know, we didn't have a tech. We had a salesperson and no tech. That's not good. Right. So, you know, we, we basically managed that office for about nine months remotely, you know, mobile, we would go pull seats. And so I think a lot of times, you know, you, you know, if you got lemons, you make lemonade, right? And so, you know, we've always been to that mindset that there is a solution to almost every problem. You just got to think about it. Yeah. How did you, how did you grow from one store to three? You know, for, for us, that was probably, um, my parents did not want more than one store. Yeah. My, my dad, again, simple man in the sense that he said, you know, the happiest day and the saddest day of his life was the day he hired an employee. Um, and, uh, and I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, it really wasn't that day, but it was the day that I had a customer call and say they weren't happy about something. Yeah. And I relate it back to hiring that employee. He said, the fact is that if you're not doing the work, there's always going to be a variable in what that other person did, even though you teach them to the best of your ability. And so, you know, my dad, over the years, when, when we actually opened our second store, we had about 60 employees at that point. And we knew the Raleigh market was a good market. We were doing some work in it, but, you know, from a standpoint of you had to be there, you know, you can only, Josh, as you know, you can only service so far off in our business, you know, 
Um, and we've always actually extended our reach probably further than most, you know, two, two and a half hours away is not uncommon for us, but we knew that that was a growing market at the time. It was, uh, demographically speaking, it had good, it had, uh, good income ratios, you know, it had high growth with, uh, with that RTP area. So we knew that we needed to be there. But my parents were at the point in their career where they said, Hey, we've made the money we need to make. We're comfortable. But if it's something you want to do, we'll, we'll back you in that, in that endeavor. And so that's kind of how we went from one to two, uh, stores. And then the, the third store was a, um, was a, was an acquisition that, that worked out well. Um, and then our four store in Roanoke was, uh, uh, was just a new venture that we started from scratch. But, you know, I tell people, and Josh, you've heard this story. I know some of the other guys in, in our 20 group have heard it, but going from one to two damn near killed me. Uh, it is an absolute beast to try to run two locations in our line of work because of the just high degree of technical expertise that's required. When I went from two to three, I, I didn't miss a beat though. Um, you know, and so I think, you know, a lot of shops, and this is really unfortunate, and it goes to the point of, you know, something we touched on earlier is a lot of shops are suspect. Um, and I know people that are good people, but they were held hostage by the, the back of the house. And when I say that you had technicians that would want to put in a subpar product because it was easier, right? Um, you know, Sunders are, are a good example and they wouldn't want to put in a product that was harder, but better because, of uh, it took longer or whatever the case may be. And, 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 you know, my sense, that's the tail wagging the dog and you don't want to ever be in that situation. And, I, and where I'm going with this is that once you get to a critical mass where you have enough good technicians, then you can be confident if you have to let a technician go or you have to call the herd because you know that the, the wheels aren't going to come off the proverbial wagon, if you would. And so when you get to that point to grow, your operation gets easier. Um, but for a lot of small, you know, smaller shops, you've only got one guy that does leather, one guy that does electronics, one guy that does sunroof. And so you're, you know, you've got to be a good manager, right? You've got to, I mean, you know, and be a good leader, getting people to follow your, you know, your desires and things is not easy. How have you uh, dealt with or navigated the, all these challenges with the supply chain issues and the low dealership inventory, just the economy in general? and how it's impacted the, the industry. Are you seeing much there where you're at? Do you notice it? I think, you know, all of us uh, have seen, you know, and, and again, this, you know, COVID was, uh, was, a, was an interesting time, right? You know, you saw low inventory levels um, with, with record high demand um, for the inventory levels that were present. And yes, we saw supply chain issues. And I think, again, a lot of it is you have to be, um, proactive and not reactive in any business. And ours is no different, right? You know, if you see something coming um, or you get an inclination and you've got the, the asset base to do it, you tend to try to stock up. You know, we would try to keep materials. We were never one to say, hey, I'm going to keep one video system on hand. Well, if I think I'm going to use four or five in a month, I'm going to have six or eight on hand. Um, and I, again, not everybody can do that, but, you know, we tended to stock more product. We tended to to try to help insulate ourselves prior to COVID, prior to some of the issues we're running into now. Um, and, and so that helps, right? But not everybody can do that. But again, you can't just think about today. You got to think about tomorrow. Right. And so, yes, we've been impacted by it. Um, but um, 
I think you just have to have a good long range plan. And, and even then, you know, the best plans, you know, things happen. So, you know, I, trust me, we've, you know, we've been, we've been suspect at, you know, part shortages, you know, again, a lot of OE parts too, you know, where you may be two, three months before you get that part back. It's tough. You know, uh, another uh, accolade for top, tops and trends, Jesse, is they actually one year won, um, what, Inc. Uh, Inc. 500, one of the top businesses. Serious. That's a big deal. Yeah. What, yes. What year was that, roughly? Yeah. Oh, so I think that was in 88. Pretty sure it was 88. 88. So we were the 400, yeah, 407th fastest growing company in the country. Wow. And yes. so that, and, and you have to, you know, you have to send in all your, you know, financials and it's pretty big uh, to do. You know, you, you go to an event you know, with, with all these folks. And again, I didn't go, my parents went uh, and, you know, they, uh, you know, with the governor and things of that nature. So it, it was a neat, you know, it was a neat time. And, and so, and if you look at some of the companies that have been on that list, you know, some of those are, are now not incorporated 500 companies or fortune 500 companies. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have that same luck, but that's okay. We're we're in a good spot. It, 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 no, I mean, it, so it's a big deal ahead. just to get on the Inc. Five Thousand list, by the way. So Inc. Five Hundred, that's that's pretty elite. That that's pretty awesome. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was for all the sunroof installers in North Carolina. They made top five hundred. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it just shows. Well, no, that, you no. Know, J- Go Josh, ahead. it was North and South Carolina. I oh, North like and South Carolina were in, were included. <laughs> okay, probably a little bit of Tennessee, I bet too. But maybe Southern Virginia too, while you're at it. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, think about this, Jesse, most second generation owners and businesses fail. And there's a big reason behind that. Like Joey talked about, because maybe they don't have the drive, the work ethic, the know-how, the understanding, the, the just the desire, the care. But to Joey's credit, you know, he didn't even have a brother or sister to do this with. You know, he had two parents that, we're actively running this business. Then he takes over and think about that to grow from, from what it was an Inc 500 company. And then to say, okay, we're going to branch out. We're going to get out of our comfort zone. We're going to go do a second location, a third location, open up some new spots, really diversify in your, your real estate, your buildings, and keep on top of that to the point where now, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're one of, they're the main retailer in North Carolina. Um, so kudos to you, Joey, for, I'm sure you, I'm sure it doesn't go without hard work and, you know, I'm sure your wife at times goes, yeah, the stress level is there, but you know, kudos to you and your team. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. A family business, you have, uh, you know, you've always got family to depend on and you know, that means that you can depend on them to have your back and, and stab you in the back too. And they don't mean to stab you in the back. It's just, you know, family always has a lot of, uh, of you know, ideas on how things ought to work. And so, you know, not having a brother or sister is not something I, uh, you know, aspire to, but it did make certain negotiations a little bit easier, um, <laughs> you know, from the standpoint that, you know, I didn't have to convince, you know, but again, my mom and dad were, were, were pretty interesting in the sense that when we would have discussions, we, we kind of agreed early on that it was kind of a democracy. And sometimes my mom and I would align and sometimes my dad and I would align and sometimes my mom and dad would align. And so, you know, the chips fell where they may. Um, and, and you don't often hear that. I've got a lot of friends that have family owned businesses in other areas and other industries. And, and a lot of times there's a big struggle, you know, where, you know, mom or dad don't want to give up control. And, you know, I'm not going to tell you that my parents wanted to give up control. They, they didn't. My mom still, you know, there's a pretty fine line between, uh, what gets said and what gets done, uh, you know, when it comes to her, her location, but, 
you know, for, for them, they always, and I, I was really fortunate, they always supported my desire to grow the business and, and the vision that I had. Um, and, and we really operated well in that, that, that space. And, and I, I will say that's probably, uh, not the norm for a lot of people. You guys have a, you have a broader perspective than I think a lot of business owners would just because of that multi-generational thing. And you, you sort of talked about it already, but how, how have you seen the industry change since you first got involved and, and more importantly, where do you see it heading in the future? I don't, you know, I don't, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but I would love to hear your thoughts on that. You know, I think, you know, there's always going to be, uh, something that's going to upset any marketplace, right? You know, and, and the old saying, if you're not, uh, if you're not growing, you're done. And so for us, the challenge has been, you know, we go to the SEMA show, which is, is, you know, coming up here, uh, very shortly and, uh, uh, first of November and we go out there to see what's the new product. And, you know, we struggle in the restyling business to find that new product over the last probably Josh, what do you say? Four to five years, maybe even a little bit longer. We've really struggled with what's that new product. I mean, we've had some, some things that have, you know, that have garnered some interest, you know, whether it be things like some ADAS products like blind spot, uh, and things of that nature, but there's not been that really powerful product like leather was 20 years ago or sunroofs or ground effects. You've not had that product where everybody has to have now. You've had some things like, uh, I'd say vehicle wraps are probably one of the things that maybe a lot of the restylers have got into, um, that has been helpful. Window tinting's always been around. You've got some restylers kind of delving into that market. Some guys doing some of the van and fleet work. Um, but you know, we're all kind of standing it around, looking at each other, trying to figure out what's going to be, you know, that next step. And as you look at EVs, you know, being a greater and greater market share of what's being sold. Uh, and you know, so much of the technology being integrated into the vehicle from the factory, where, where does that leave us? Right. And, and I think that, you know, that's a struggle and a lot of people are not good at change. And that's, that's unfortunate because they don't know, they don't know where to go. And so what happens is I see a lot of restylers and I see a lot of businesses in general, they just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And then before you know it, they're, they're on a dead end path. Um, declining revenue, you know, uh, stagnant sales, whatever it may be. And then you've got a workforce that, you know, most of them are smart enough to know when they, they're on a ship that may not be, you know, uh, afloat for much longer. Um, and I'm not saying that that our bit, but again, we have to recognize that we have to go out and find new opportunities for growth in our, in our industry. And, you know, the traditional, you know, for many of us as restylers, you know, it was always the dealership and, you know, that the dealers are making record profit right now. So, you know, and have been for the last three to four or five years. And so, you know, when somebody's doing really well, you know, when you ring the doorbell, they don't always come to the door because you know what? They're busy. They're busy going and printing money and taking it to the bank. <laughs> How do you stay up to date? Like with the latest trends and all the technology, is it, I mean, you, you have to rely a lot on the manufacturer's rep or somebody or connections or just SEMA or reading magazines or the web or like, how are you keeping up with all this stuff? Well, you know, it's funny, you know, reps play a very small part of what, you know, I do from a, from a, I guess, a research standpoint. I mean, it used to be huge, right? It used to be, you depended on your rep to come by and show you the, you know, open up his, his suitcase and show you his latest wares and, you know. Josh, I don't know about you, but, you know, if I get visited by a rep, you know, from some of the biggest suppliers I work with more than once a year right now, I think somebody's about to, you know, something must be wrong. Yeah. And it used, it used to be 
it used to be twice or once a year, but then COVID came and they're like, oh, we can just do all this on Zoom or just email. So we'll just never leave our house. <laughs> yeah. And, and and listen, you know, we're we're enjoying this discussion probably from our from our home. Um and so yeah, there's a there's a place for that. But yeah, I mean, to your point, Jesse, about how I get information, uh, you know, that's we're all guilty of it if if we're a business owner and especially if we have a sales mentality, we like to talk more than we listen. You know, my grandmother, you know, I come from a family that's full of stories, as Josh will tell you. Um, you know, there's always a joke or always a story, but my grandmother said, there's a reason why God gave you two ears and one mouth. You're supposed to listen twice as much as you talk. And, uh, I don't, I don't do it very well, but I know that you're supposed to. And so <laughs> when you want to, when you want to learn, you just, you listen to people that know more than you. So, you know, I try to listen to, you know, I, I read a lot, you know, pretty much my, my morning routine is, you know, I typically read uh, a lot of publications. I read automotive news. Um, I try to talk to the dealers. I try to see what's going on. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I, a magazines, you know, again, but again, almost everything's went digital, right? So, you know, I don't do a lot of, you know, publications like we used to read, but so I would say going to the dealer lots, trying to identify things. And that's where I'm probably weak. I used to be pretty good at it. You know, we used to, Josh probably would tell you the same thing. We used to walk that dealer lot, right? Pounding the pavement and trying to read window stickers and see where the opportunities were. And, you know, I think there's a lot of gold in them hills, um, but people don't do it anymore. Us included, like we should. Um, Catskin, you know, again, to give them some credit, I think they do as good a job as anybody with trying to help identify opportunities uh, within the, 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 the menu of vehicle trim levels to help give rich dollars a good opportunity to find things that they can work with. And if more manufacturers would invest the resources to do that, I think rich dollars could, could do better. But, you know, now that's a chicken and egg story, right? Which comes first, right? Is it the reseller's job to go out and find the opportunities or is it the manufacturer's job to go out and find the opportunities? You could argue it either way, but at the end of the day, I guess it's the person that wants to be the most successful is the one that's going to grab the bull by the horns. Yeah, that's good. You got, now with, well, let me tell you another thing, Jesse, about tops and trends. Uh, 20, let me guess, 20, 2006, was it 2006 when tops and trends won restyler of the year? Maybe it's oh four or five. I, think, I don't know if it's been that long ago, but so, yeah, it's it. I mean, then again, very, as you get older, very SEMA no. prestigious award. You can only win it one time. That's that's um that's why it's been so long. But I mean, it's it. You can only win it one time. So, um, but uh, uh, when I was kind of coming up in the business, I remember. I think I was there. Funny story. I don't know if I've even told you this, Joey. It was November Fest. That's what they called it. So we had a little pro party in the uh, at the SEMA show in the Westgate Lounge. And um, I remember my wife and I were there. And it was like one of my – I'd been to SEMA a couple times, but now I got introduced to pro. Um, so I came to the party, um, and it was that year that you won. And I remember you going on stage and getting that award. And I said, man, one day, one day I want to be that guy – getting that award one day and then funny enough like the next year i don't know whether it was you know did you ever sell amway because you invited me to the pro meeting and i'm just what it was i felt like it was an amway thing so he invited me to pro he's like what are you doing tomorrow i was like uh i i don't know what are you doing tomorrow at 7 30 in the morning i'm like probably sleeping he goes no come to this pro meeting and so joey was on pro before i was ever even introduced so he invited me to the pro meeting and then I thought we were going to be selling Amway later, but he never did bring up the Amway thing. Um, 
And then I also asked him, how much of my business are you getting? Are you making a piece of me off of this pro thing? He said, no, no, no. It's all about just networking and everything like that. So Joey's the one that created the problem child that you see before you, Jesse. Awesome. It's your fault then. Awesome. Now we know. Yes. The Frankenstein. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Josh, Josh, uh, Josh doesn't listen very well. Getting back to that analogy of listening yes. twice as much as you talk, because I told him, "Hey, listen, this pro thing—it's a volunteer gig. It doesn't pay anything." And you know, back when I was doing it, SEMA uh, was through one of their cyclical spells. We were in the bottom, so they didn't have any money to pay for travel and meals and things like that. And so it was pretty much mostly on my dime when I would go and you know work for the industry, quote quote, right? And uh, and I did that for six years, and I basically you can only you know you can only basically serve on council for six years, and unless you become the uh, uh, the chairman. And uh, we looked around, and a couple of us were like, you know what? I think six years is enough um, yeah. for this. And and we told Josh that going in, but you know what? He he was already at a good full run, so we just figured we'd let him hit the wall head on. <laughs> Here I am, twelve years later, I I hit yeah. the wall. I hit. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, uh, Joey, a little bit more about your business back to the, you got a multi-location business, which is impressive and all of the history and the Inc. 500 and all that stuff in the past. Um, What makes you guys unique in in restyling Uh, and what sets you apart from other companies in the field and in your area? How do you guys separate yourself in in that way? Well, you know, I think, yeah, we're not special in the sense that I think in any market you're going to have kind of a good, better, best uh, group of uh, of players, right? And you know, obviously, I'm a little bit, uh, uh, you know, one sided maybe in this, but I think we're the best, uh, and we charge a premium price for it, and and that's okay, right? But there's also a need for those other players. Um, that are offering, you know, a service that maybe not at the same level with different level products, because that may be a, a budgetary need for the end consumer. Uh, I think where we try to excel um, or try to excel, and let me, let me preface that because dealers, God, we love them and we hate them. Right. Um, and this is being really candid and really honest. Like, you know, we sat around and tried to educate dealers and maybe that sounds conceited, but you know, to where we could offer an opportunity for them to make profit. And dealers just, you know, sales staff in general are not very good on details. They're not very good on processes. And very few dealerships and their management teams would really take the time to invest in a model where they could sell the product. And so, you know, a lot of us said that, you know, we don't want to ever upset dealers because that's our primary customer. And I think COVID really... For the most part, anybody that was sitting on the fence said, you know what, we can't depend on the dealership to be the only way we sell our product. And I'm coming back full circle to that good, better, best, right? Dealers, my issue with how dealers interact with the customer is when they sell that customer a brand new vehicle, whether it be a Ford F-150 or a Toyota Camry, the customer probably wants the best product that's available. But if they only, if they don't get an option, and the dealer makes a decision for them, then maybe they're getting a subpar product with a subpar installation. And they made it, they made it, they didn't make a decision. The dealer made the decision for them. And so, and oftentimes, unfortunately, that was done to keep the price point down or increase their profits. And again, it's nothing wrong with making a profit. Um, but we found that when you interact directly with the, with the consumer that are, 
our positivity, our customer satisfaction was considerably higher. And, you know, so we still work mainly with the dealer, but we try to engage with that end user. We want to make sure that we're meeting their expectations. And, and that's been helpful. And I think that's maybe one thing that sets us apart. I think a lot of people look at that as being additional work. And yes, it is more work up front, but I can tell you it saves a lot of heartache down the line, right? So it's kind of like that, you know, an ounce of, you know, prevention's worth a pound of cure type yeah. thing. Jesse, just to give you an example. So, you know, what we're talking about here is a dealer will call us and say, hey, uh, put in, put in uh, this, uh, this DVD system. All right. Which one do you want? We have three options. Put in the cheapest one you got. Okay. So why? Because they don't, they don't tell us why they don't know. We don't know if it's part of the deal and the bank will finance it. If the customer's short on cash or they're just trying to make money. We just do what we're told because they're our customer. They spend 20, 30 grand with us a month. So we put it in customer absolutely hates it. You know, they saw one and it's got all these other features and this or that. So who are, so then they're mad if they come to us, they go, this is crazy. Then they see the other ones we have like, why I want that one. And so then we say, you know, without throwing the dealer under the bus, who's our customer, well, your dealer told us to put this one in and that's, you know, what they did. Well, then they call the dealership. Then the dealership calls us, put the good one in for you got, you need to take care of it. You know, you need to do this. You need to do that. And we're like, well, you told us to do that. Well, just take care of it. And I'll, I'll make it up to you later on. Just take care of this customer, you know, right. And to Joey's point, if we would engage with the consumer first, that customer probably would even be willing to pay additional money. But the sales people at the dealership, they're just, they're just not trained to work with a third party and get the consumer what they want. Yeah, and they're short-sighted. They're not looking at the long yes. picture. They're look, It's quick fix. It's hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. And Jesse, to that point, you know, and you know, I'm, I think maybe unique in the sense that, I, that we do a, a thing called PTA, right? And, you know, for those of you that are old enough to remember, you know, Harper Valley, I say, no, but it's not that, right? So. Uh, I've just dated myself with the Harper Valley PTA reference, but uh, for those of you who want to look it up, you'll there's an old out. person laughing uh, in their car right now. <laughs> That's right. They're like, yep, yep. But no, you know, so PTA is a profit through accessorization. And we go in and we do a training session and we talk to people because, you know, most salespeople, even though, I mean, Josh can tell you, uh, Jesse, if you've done it, you know, in your, in your, uh, experience working, if you walk into any sales training room at a dealership, there's going to be more positivity on the wall. It's like you're going to a Notre Dame game and you're getting ready to slap the, the wall before you walk out into the stadium, right? It's like there's a lot of rah-rah in dealerships and there's a lot of great selling processes and there's a lot of great you know, um, uh, engagement in how you work with the customer. The problem is it gets left in that room as soon as they walk out. And they get out on the dealership lot. And when, you know, Mr. Smith and Mrs. Smith walk up and they say, hey, I'm looking at a vehicle. It's a race to the cheapest price because that's just what salespeople envision in their mind. And because the customer thinks that the best price is what is what they ultimately are looking for, then everybody's on this mindset. And, and I said, look, you're doing it wrong. You've got to address the need. Like if a customer comes in saying, I'm looking for an XLT Lariat 302A package. Um, do they do that? No. They say, I'm looking for a, an XLT and you don't ask them why you just go show them that, or they're looking for a Lariat or they're looking for a Laramie, right? So when that comes up, the salespeople are, they don't think about the needs analysis. They just go show them the vehicle. And now all of a sudden they're sitting here going, wait a minute. Why, you know, why do you want that vehicle? Do you really want 
navigation? Do you really want a sunroof? Do you really want leather? And the customer says, no, I just really want leather, but you got to get the sunroof and the navigation to get the leather. And, and you know, if the good salespeople and all of us have a couple of those salespeople that get it, man, they hit home runs. They have better, they have customers that are more satisfied. They, in a lot of cases, are putting them in a vehicle that calls less and the customer's got a better payment. And to the dealership's point, the, the salespeople make more money because, you know, there's a, there's a thought within, you know, consumers that if you go out and you buy that sixty-five dollars or $70,000 pickup truck, the salesperson made more money than if you bought a fifty-five dollars to $60,000 truck. They think the cost of the truck directly relates to the income that the dealership or the salesperson makes. And that's, that's almost opposite. If you, the, the, the less expensive vehicle oftentimes has greater margin potential in it. And, and again, back to, I said earlier, the dealership should make a profit, but if you can save a consumer money by not letting them overspend on a vehicle, th that's a home run and a win for both parties. That's awesome. Wisdom. Hey, uh, I think that about does it in terms of our time today, but Joey, this was awesome. You have like so much to share. I don't know if you'd be willing to come on for a part two at some point in the future, but I don't know, Josh. Do It'll all be stories. It'll all be stories one <laughs> after another. You know, because we never even talked about, you know, his first install and why he's not an installer to this day. Same as me. You guys heard why I'm not an installer, but Joey had a similar experience. But anyway, go ahead, Jesse. I, would, I, would you agree, Josh? Should we have him back if he's willing? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One of my mentors. That means he's really older, much older than me. <laughs> yeah. A lot of yeah. So hey, just listen. Well, after this first check clears for this first podcast, uh, we'll talk right. about the second one. But yeah, I probably <laughs> we're looking for a sponsor. Yeah. It could happen. <laughs> yeah, tops and trends, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. Awesome, awesome. Well, thanks again for being on here today. Really appreciate it. This was uh, this was excellent. No, no worries. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And there you have it, another high-octane episode of the Ride and Style podcast, revved up and ready to go. Your hosts, Jesse Stoddard and Josh Polson, shifted your automotive game into overdrive. If you're hungry for more insights, trends, and game-changing interviews from the automotive restyling universe, don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a glowing review. We'd also love for you to share this podcast with your gearheads, installers, and auto lovers network. Because remember, knowledge is power, but shared knowledge turbocharges the whole industry. For more expert resources to supercharge your business, cruise on over to autostylemarketing.com, your one-stop shop for everything automotive marketing. Until next time, keep those wheels spinning and your passion ignited. Thank you for riding in style with us. See you on the next lap.